0: To my show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoy the show and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on the life of Frederick Douglass who wrote three autobiographies. I will continue with a 2nd autobiography, written by Frederick Douglass, which is called My Bondage and My Freedom, each week. I will read to you certain portions of each chapter. The e-book can be downloaded from wwwgutenbergorg backslash files backslash 202 backslash 202 dash h two o two In Talbot County, Eastern Shore, Maryland, near Easton, the county town of that country, there is a small district of country, thinly populated and remarkable for nothing that I know of more than for the worn out, sandy, desert-like appearance of its soil the general dilapidation of its farms and fences, the indigent and spiritless character of its inhabitants, and the prevalence of ague and fever. The name of this singularly unpromising and truly famine-stricken district is Tuckahoe, a name well known to all Marylanders, black and white. It was given to this section of country Probably at the first, merely derision, or it may possibly have been applied to it, as I have heard, because some of its earlier inhabitants had been guilty of the petty meanness of stealing a hoe, or taking a hoe that did not belong to him. Eastern shore men usually pronounce the word "took" as "tuck," took a hoe, therefore is, in Maryland, parlance, Tuckahoe. But, whatever may have been its origin, and about this I will not be positive, that name has stuck to the district in question, and it is seldom mentioned but with contempt and derision on account of its barrenness of its soul, and the ignorance, indolence, and poverty of its people. Decay and ruin are everywhere visible, and the thin population of the place would have quitted it long ago, but for the chop-tank river which runs through it, from which they take abundance of shad and herring, and plenty of agu and fever. It was in this dull, flat, and unthrifty district or neighbourhood, surrounded by a white population of the lowest order, indolent and drunken to a proverb, and among slaves, who seemed to ask, Oh! What's the use? Every time they lifted a hoe that I, without any fault of mine, was born and spent the first years of my childhood. The reader will pardon so much about the place of my birth on the score that it is always a fact of some importance to know where a man is born if, indeed, it be important to know anything about him. In regard to the time of my birth, I cannot be as definite as I have been respecting the place, nor, indeed, can I impart much knowledge concerning my parents. Genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves. A person of some consequence here in the North, sometimes designated father, is literally abolished in slave law and slave practice. It is only once in a while that an exception is found to this statement. I never met with a slave who, who could tell me how old, uh, how old he was. Few slave mothers know anything of the months of the year, nor of the days of the month. They keep no family records with marriages, births, and deaths. They measure the ages of their children by springtime, wintertime, harvest time, planting time, and the like. But these soon become undistinguishable and forgotten. Like other slaves, I cannot tell how old I am. This destitution was among my earliest troubles. I learned when I grew up that my master, and this is the case with masters generally, allowed no questions to be put to him by which a slave might learn his age. Such questions deemed evidence of impatience and even of imprudent curiosity. From certain events, however, the dates of which I have since learned, I suppose myself, to have been born about the year 1817. The first experience of life with me that that I now remember, and I remember it but hazily, began in the family of my grandmother and grandfather, Betsy and Isaac Bailey. They were quite advanced in life and had long lived on the spot where they then resided. They were considered old settlers in the neighbourhood, and from certain circumstances I infer that my grandmother especially was held in high esteem far higher than is the lot of most colored persons in the slave states she was a good nurse and a capital hand at making nets for catching shad and herring, and these nets were in great demand not only in Tuckahoe but at Denton and Hillsborough neighboring villages. She was not only good at making the nets, but was also somewhat famous for her good fortune in taking the fishes referred to. I have known her to be in the water half the day. Grandmother was likewise more provident than most of her neighbours in the preservation of seedling sweet potatoes, and it happened to her, as it will happen to any careful and thrifty person residing in an ignorant and improvident community to enjoy the reputation of having been born to good luck. Her good luck was owing to the exceeding care which she took in preventing the succulent root from getting bruised in the digging, and in placing it beyond the reach of frost by actually burying it under the hearth of her cabin during the winter months. In the time of planting sweet potatoes, Grandmother Betty, as she was familiarly called, was sent for in all directions simply to place the seething potatoes in the hills for superstition had it, that if Grandmamma Betty but touches them at planting, they will be sure to f- grow and flourish. This high reputation was full of advantage to her, and to the children around her. Though Tucker Ho had but few of the good things of life, yet of such as it did possess, Grandmother got a full share in the way of presents. If good potato crops came after a planting, She was not forgotten by those for whom she planted, and as she was remembered by others, so she remembered the hungry little ones around her. The dwelling of my grandmother and grandfather had few pretensions. It was a log, hut, or cabin, built of clay, wood, and straw. At a distance it resembled, though it was smaller, less commodious, and less substantial, the cabins erected in the western states by the first settlers. To my child's eye, however, it was a noble structure, admirably adapted to promote the comforts and convenience of its inmates. A few rough Virginia fence rails flung loosely over the rafters above answered the triple purpose of floors, ceilings, and bedsteads. To be sure, this upper apartment was reached only by a ladder, but what in the world for climbing could be better than a ladder? To me, this letter was really a high invention and possessed a sort of charm as I played with delight upon the rounds of it. In this, little, in, in this little hut, there was a large family of children. I dare not say how many. My grandmother, whether because too old for field service or because she had so faithfully discharged the duties of her stationing in early life, I know not. Enjoyed the high privilege of living in a cabin, separate from the quarter. With no other burden than her own support and the necessary care of the little children imposed she evidently esteemed it a great fortune to live so the children were not her own but her grandchildren the children of her daughters she took delight in having them around her and in attending to their few wants the practice of separating children from their mother and hiring the latter out at distances too great to admit of their meeting except at long intervals is a marked feature of the cruelty and barbarity of the slave system, but it is in harmony with the grand aim of slavery, which always and everywhere is to reduce man to a level with the brute. It is a successful method of obliterating from the mind and heart of the slave, all such ideas of the sacredness of the family as an institution. educational resources to help reach your goals hello listeners if you're enjoying the new Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization please visit www.newheightseducation.org and while you're there check out our online store Welcome back to the New Heights Show in Education. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. A recap of the first segment of the show on Frederick Douglass will continue. Chapter two: Removed from my first home. The that mysterious individual referred to in the first chapter as an object of terror among the inhabitants of our little cabin, under the ominous title of Old Master, was really a man of some consequence. He owned several farms in Tuckahoe, was the chief clerk and butler on the home plantation of Colonel Edward Lloyd, had overseers on his own farms, and gave directions to overseers on the farms belonging to Colonel Lloyd. This plantation is situated on Wye River, the river receiving its name doubtless from Wales, where the Lloyds originated. They, the Lloyds, are an old and honoured family in Maryland, exceedingly wealthy. The home plantation where they have resided, perhaps for a century or more, is one of the largest, most fertile and best appointed in the state. About this plantation, and about that queer old master, who must be something more than a name, and something worse than an angel, the reader will easily imagine that I was not only curious, but eager to know all that could be known. Unhappily for me, however, all the information I could get concerning him increased my great dread of being carried thither, of being separated from, and deprived of the protection of my grandmother and grandfather. It was evidently a great thing to go to Colonel Lloyd's, and I was not without a little curiosity to see the place, but no amount of coaxing could induce me could induce in me the wish to remain there. The fact is, such was my dread of leaving the little cabin that I wished to remain little forever, for I knew the taller I grew, the shorter my stay. The old cabin with its rail floor and rail bedsteads upstairs and its clay floor downstairs and its dirt chimney and windowless sides, and that most curious piece of workmanship dug in front of the fireplace, beneath which Grandmama placed the sweet potatoes to keep them from the frost, was my home. The only home I ever had, and I loved it, and all connected with it. The old fences around it, and the stumps in the edge of the woods near it, and the squirrels that ran, skipped, and played upon them, were objects of interest and affection. There too, right at the side of the hut, stood the old well, with its stately and skyward-pointing beam, so aptly placed between the limbs of what had once been a tree, and so nicely balanced, that I could move it up and down with only one hand, and could get a drink myself without calling for help. Where else in the world could such a well be found? Or where could such another home be met with? Nor were, nor were these all the attractions of the place down in a little valley not far from Grandmamma's cabin stood mr lee's mill where the people came often in large numbers to get their corn ground it was a water mill and i never shall be able to tell the many things thought and felt while i sat on the bank and watched that mill and the turning of that ponderous wheel the mill pond too had its charms and with my pin-hook and thread-line, I could get nibbles if I could catch no fish. But in all my sports and plays, and in spite of them, there would occasionally come the painful foreboding that I was not long to remain there, and that I must soon be called away to the home of old master. I was a slave, born a slave, and though the fact was incomprehensible to me, it conveyed to my mind a sense of my entire dependence on the will of somebody I had never seen, and from some cause or other. I had been made to fear this somebody above all else on earth. Born for another's benefit, as the firstling of the cabin flock, I was soon to be selected as a meat offering to the fearful and inexorable demigod, whose huge image on so many occasions haunted my childhood's imagination. When the time of my departure was decided upon, my grandmother, knowing my fears and in pity for them, kindly kept me ignorant of the dreaded event about to transpire. Up to the morning, a beautiful summer morning, when we were to start, and indeed during the whole journey, a journey which, child as I was, I remember as well as if it were yesterday. She kept the sad fact hidden from me. This reserve was necessary. For... Could I have known all? I should have given Grandmother some trouble in getting me started. As it was, I was helpless, and she, dear woman, led me along by my hand, resisting with the reserve and solemnity of a priestess. All my inquiring looks to the last. Chapter 3. Parentage. If the reader will now be kind enough to allow me time to grow bigger, and afford me an opportunity for my experience to become greater, I will tell him something, by and by, of slave life, as I saw, felt and heard it, on Colonel Edward Lord's plantation, and at the house of Old Master, where I had now, despite of myself, most suddenly, but not unexpectedly, been dropped. Meanwhile, I will redeem my promise to say something more of my dear mother. I say nothing of father, for he is shrouded in a mystery. I have never been able to penetrate. Slavery does away with fathers as it does away with families. Slavery has no use for either fathers or or families, and its laws do not recognize the existence in the social arrangements of the plantation. When they do exist, they are not the outgrowth of slavery, but are antagonistic to that system. The order of civilization is reversed here. The name of the child is not expected to be that of his father, and his condition does not necessarily affect that of the child. He may be the slave of Mr. Tilghman and his child when born, may be the slave of Mr. Gross. He may be a freeman, and yet his child may be a chattel. He may be white, glorying in the purity of his Anglo-Saxon blood, and his child may be ranked with the blackest slaves. Indeed. He may be and often is master and father to the same child. He can be father without being a husband and may sell his child without incurring reproach. If the child be by a woman in whose veins causes one thirty-second part of African blood, my father was a white man or nearly white. It was sometimes whispered that my master was my father. But to return or rather to begin My knowledge of my mother is very scanty, but very distinct. Her personal appearance and bearing are ineffaceably stamped upon my memory. She was tall and finely proportioned, of deep black, glossy complexion, regular features, and among the other slaves was remarkably sedate in her manners. There is in Pritchard's Natural History of Man the head of a figure on page 157, the features of which so resemble those of my mother, that I often recur to it with something of the feeling which I suppose others experience when looking upon the pictures of dear departed ones. Yet, I cannot say that I was very deeply attached to my mother, certainly not so deeply as I should have been, had our relations in childhood been different. We were separated according to the common custom when I was but an infant, and of course before I knew my mother from anyone else. The germs of affection with which the Almighty in his wisdom and mercy arms the hopeless infant against the ills and vicissitudes of his lot had been directed in their growth toward that loving old grandmother whose gentle hand and kind deportment it was in the first effort of my infantile understanding to comprehend and appreciate. Accordingly the tenderest affection which a beneficent father allows as a partial compensation to the mother for the pains and lacerations of her heart, incident to the maternal relation, was, in my case, diverted from its true natural object by the envious, greedy, and treacherous hand of slavery. The slave mother can be spared long enough from the field to endure all the bitterness of a mother's anguish when it adds another name to a master's ledger, but not long enough to receive the joyous reward afforded by the intelligent smiles of a child. I never think of this terrible interference of slavery with my infantile affections, and it's diverting them from their natural course, without feelings to which I can give no adequate expression. This comes to the conclusion of the show. Next week's show will continue on the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, My Bondage and My Freedom. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, B at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesday by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil rights is our right.